You've seen the headlines, bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. More and more people are railing against vaccinations. Thanks to conspiracy theories and fear that's based on wildly false information, diseases once declared eradicated are resurging. So is the number of needless deaths. We look into a worrying trend and how it's being dealt with. And do you know what a relative clause is? How about a subordinating conjunction? You probably know perfectly well how to use them, but the way grammar is taught probably won't have helped. First up, though. The Brexit saga rolls on. Last night, to a private meeting of Conservative members of Parliament, the Prime Minister Theresa May made the grandest of gestures. She's said to have been close to tears as she told them that if they backed her Brexit deal with the European Union, she would resign. Mrs May's proposal took two years to hammer out, But parliamentarians, including many in her own party, have overwhelmingly voted against it twice. Now, with her promise to fall on her sword, some who used to strongly oppose her deal are coming on side. Among them, former Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson. Meanwhile, Parliament has been considering a series of eight alternative Brexit proposals in what's known as indicative voting. I can now announce the result of today's recorded votes on motions relating to the United Kingdom's withdrawal... It's an effort to determine whether any of them could command a majority in a formal vote. But last night, all of them were rejected. The ayes were 264, the noes were 272. So the noes have it. For months now, Theresa May has been trying to get her Brexit deal through Parliament. It's been heavily rejected twice by MPs. John Peat is our Brexit editor. Her team have decided that the best chance she has of persuading them to not change their minds and back it is to promise to resign when they vote for it. And that does seem to have tempted some Conservative MPs over onto her side. But why? Why should her leaving make it look more palatable to them? Well, the bulk of the opponents to her deal in the Conservative Party are hardline Brexiteers who think it's too soft And they would quite like to see her go because they're hoping to replace her with somebody more like them. And will the ploy work? I mean, the the deal that she still wants to get across the line was thumped badly twice. Is this going to change the calculus? I think the arithmetic is still against Theresa May. Um, I mean, the big hope when she made this announcement was not just that quite a few Conservative MPs would come over to her side, and some of them did, uh, including leading members of the 
so-called European research group like Jacob Rees-Mogg. The hardline Brexiteer types. The hardline Brexiteer types. Many of them have now come over. But what she really needed was to get to the Northern Irish Democratic Unionists on her side. And they announced after her resignation offer they still were not going to support her deal. Right. Um, and meanwhile, uh, there has been this sort of separate effort to come up with some kind of alternative, eight, eight of them, in fact, and none appeared to get a consensus last night. What is the plan B? What if Mrs. May can't get the deal across the line? Well, I think the problem or the big sort of central problem for, for Westminster is that there is no majority for almost anything at the moment. I think the process that MPs have initiated against the government's wishes of saying, look, we want to find out what kind of deal might have the best chance of securing a majority will continue. All the votes last night went down, but some of them were really quite close, and particularly one to keep Britain permanently in a customs union with the European Union, which lost by only eight votes, compared with her deal, which on the last attempt lost by 149 votes. So I think you'd have to say that the consensus in, in Westminster is moving towards a slightly different deal that would add a permanent customs union. Mrs. May's offer to resign will now start a full-blown leadership contest that's been murmured about for months. And McElvoy, one of our senior editors, has been considering the frontrunners. There are certainly a number of politicians with a lean and hungry look for Theresa May's job. And if we start with her own cabinet, you have some people like Jeremy Hunt and Sajid Javid, their foreign secretary and home secretary respectively. They've got big jobs. Both of them switched from Remain to saying they would deliver Brexit. They did that for a number of reasons, but one of the big reasons is they want to be able to say to the Conservative selectorate, I delivered Brexit for you. Then there are those who have perhaps even leaner and hungrier looks, though lean doesn't seem quite the right word for Boris Johnson. Let us seize this chance and make this our moment to stand tall in the world. He's a strong Brexiteer, a large blonde man-child who is amusing, random, often unreliable, and he has made very clear indeed that he sees himself as being the bearer of the true Brexiteer crown. But he has some competition, and that is from Michael Gove, who is a very intellectual character. Brexit and the aftermath has caused strains and tensions to be placed on friendships and relationships. And there are those, perhaps on the Remain side, who feel that they could live with Michael Gove more readily than with this huge, bombastic figure, Boris Johnson. John, it's, it's clear now that Mrs. May's political future is uncertain. Would a leadership contest and new leadership perhaps help with getting towards a Brexit resolution or does this only add more chaos to a very chaotic thing? I think a leadership contest and the likely departure of Mrs. May just makes things more complicated. It's not at all clear that that will help the UK to find a solution that is acceptable both to the House of Commons and perhaps more importantly to the rest of the European Union. Her decision to, to offer to resign is conditional on getting her deal through. So if her deal does not go through, she may rescind her decision and say, well, look, I better stay around for a bit longer. But I think on any analysis, she's in a very much weakened position. And most Tory MPs now expect her to go, if not in, in sort of May, by the end of the summer in any case. So I think they are beginning to talk about possible replacements and, and, and organizing a leadership contest. I won't ask you the difficult question of what happens in the long term, whether you think we're any clearer on, on the outcome of all this. But what happens in the shorter term? What, what should we expect next? Well, I think MPs will probably continue the process of trying to winnow out through indicative votes to see if there's a, an alternative 
changed version of the Brexit deal that might win a majority. The government will continue probably over the next few days, to sort of lobby hard to see if there's a possibility of securing a majority for Mrs May's own deal. That will play out for the next few days. But it's going to run up against a deadline, which is that the European Union has said you have until April the 12th to, to sort this out. That's already an extended deadline. So the stage after that will be, should they extend the deadline further? And I expect that there will be an emergency European summit at which there will be another extension, but it probably will only be until something like the end of May, and it will be contingent on Britain holding European elections, which will muddy the process even further. John, thanks very much. Thank you. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. As recently as the early 1960s, measles killed two to three million people every year worldwide. In America alone, 50,000 people were hospitalized each year. Between four and 500 of them died. As of this time, measles is by far our most serious epidemic childhood disease. This film was made by drug company Merck, Sharp & Dome in about 1964. It marked the first licensing of a measles vaccine, hailed by America's Surgeon General Luther Terry. As increasing numbers of children are vaccinated, we will be well on the way to eradicating a disease that down through the centuries has killed millions of children and left others impaired mentally and physically. All of those who have contributed in any way to this cause for better health can be proud of a great achievement. Annual cases dropped sharply. In 2000, the disease was declared eliminated in America. But lately, it's been creeping back. Georgia is the latest state where multiple cases of measles have appeared. In Oregon, Governor Kate Brown is urging residents to get vaccinated for measles as public health officials in Oregon and Washington report a combined year. Measles outbreaks have been and continue to be a constant threat to the health of the American people. This year, measles cases have been reported in 12 American states. That's in large part because of a rise in the number of parents who believe, wrongly, that the vaccine is harmful, and so they don't vaccinate their kids. This week, a county in New York state declared a state of emergency because of an outbreak. In Washington state, epidemiologist Scott Lindquist has the tough job of responding to a similar outbreak. He's seen cases crop up among groups of people who don't get immunized. Misinformation is spread through a lot of communities, especially um, folks that may come here from other countries that um, have not heard that this has been debunked, etc. So that still remains a real threat to the public health um, system in, the, in Washington state. There are all kinds of communities who hesitate to vaccinate their children. So the other day I went up to Evanston, which is a wealthy, leafy a suburb of Chicago to the north of Chicago. It's beside the lake. Adam Roberts is The Economist's Midwest correspondent. 
It's also a sort of neighbourhood where you have slightly alternative types. There's a cafe there called the Blind Faith Cafe that serves up vegan and gluten-free meals. It's popular with people who might have a slightly alternative or left-leaning uh, political bent. So although there are many different types of people who get drawn into the anti-vaxxer movement, one group that is, is especially prevalent are people who are educated enough and have enough time on their hands to spend days and days searching through the internet to find out information about vaccines. And, and so what kind of information are they finding? What, what kinds of voices are they relying on? So when I was up in Evanston, just around the corner from the Blind Faith Cafe, I went to the office of a homeopathic doctor, Dr. Tony Bark, who is a trained paediatrician, who's a very dynamic, active speaker. She has a lot to say about alternative medicine. She likes to take ice-cold baths in, in Lake Michigan. She has strong views about how to be healthy, and she has very strong views about vaccines. Would you go on a trip to yeah, so, take okay. a yellow fever gel? No, I, I wouldn't. You wouldn't take any vaccine for anything? I wouldn't. And why she believes that vaccines are not safe for people to take. We're talking about mandating a product that comes with serious risk of death. Every single one of them comes with a risk of death. With a serious risk Now, I believe that she is completely wrong when she says that, but she has a very, very strongly held but view. The only one who has immunity from vaccines, that's for certain, is the manufacturer. Um, Adam, I, I would like it if you were to tell me that the, you, you have uh, accidentally found a small pocket of people who are completely isolated in their views and that there's not a whole lot of belief behind this, but that's not what you're going to tell me, is it? No. So if you look across America, you find there are different demographics, people who come into the anti-vaxxer movement from different pathways. And so you have those, for example, who are very worried about being natural and looking after their bodies and so they don't want anything impure. Then you have groups of people who are worried about security or freedom and they don't want the government conspiring to tell them what to do. And you'll see that there are people who are rich and well-educated, but also Somali migrants might be targeted. There's a great range of demographics involved in this. Um, and you say that the uh, resistance, as it were, to, to vaccinations is not new, but this sort of resurgence certainly is. What, what got things started on the, on the current trajectory? So the current resurgence of the anti-vaxxer movement is really supercharged by the internet and the fact that you have hundreds of anti-vaccination websites, huge activity on social media. So the internet is powering a lot of this, but there's also money coming into the anti-vaxxer movement from family foundations, and there are celebrities. There are people like Jim Carrey. We are here today because we've seen our perfectly normal children descend into a state of emotional isolation. It's being supercharged by this online organization especially. Yes, but I mean, e equally, there are plenty of prominent smart people who are saying that all of this is nonsense, right? Yes. First of all, because all of it is nonsense, and so you'd hope that in the end truth will be more powerful than, than the conspiracy theories. But yes, the government and others are trying to get the message out there as effectively as they can that vaccines are perfectly safe. The difficulty is that the anti-vaxxers are incredibly good at telling stories, giving you an emotional anecdote about a child who has apparently suffered because of a vaccine injury, and so it's much harder for the pro-vaccine people to break through to those who have the conspiracy theories. Once a measles outbreak takes hold, it falls to public health workers to deal with the problem. It's a lot of work for them. 
Slaveya Chankova is our healthcare correspondent. She's been reporting on the recent outbreaks. They literally have to pull everyone they have, um, people who normally work on food safety inspections and so on, to go out and trace everyone who has been near a suspected measles case and ensure that those people are vaccinated. And among the communities that have these sort of anti-vax attitudes. Do those attitudes change when there is an outbreak? In some cases, yes, they do. Some of the places in in America which have had uh, big recent outbreaks have seen a sharp increase in vaccination rates uh, after an outbreak. So when they go out and warn people that an outbreak is occurring, people do get vaccinated. Um, But as things stand, they're not required to do so before the outbreak. Nearly all states in America have exemptions uh, from vaccination for school children whose parents uh, declare that they have a religious objection to vaccines. And on top of that, 17 states allow parents philosophical exemption as well. So that is a big problem. Last year, 2.2% of children had um, such an exemption, and uh, that was a double the rate in 2010. 2.2% may not seem like a large number, but measles is highly contagious. So you need at least 95% of people to be vaccinated in order for measles to not spread. Sylvia, thank you very much. Thank you, Jason. Now let's head back to school days with Lane Green, who writes Johnson, our column on language. Hi, Jason. Hello. Okay, so I am going to give you a little bit of a grammar quiz. Okay. All right. Now, I want you to explain how the modal verb changes the meaning of the second sentence here. Yusuf and his sister go swimming with their dad. Yusuf and his sister might go swimming with their dad. I think the first problem is that I don't know what a modal verb is. Okay, next. Now, what is the grammatical term for the underlined words in the sentence I'm going to give you? My prize was a fluffy green pencil case with a gold zip. And the underlined element is a fluffy green pencil case with a gold zip. I don't even know what my options are here. It's just a blank. You just have to tell me. Free response. I mean, it's a it's a it's a noun phrase. It is a noun phrase, correct? You, did you, I get you, it? You nailed it. <laughs> now you did well. You are, however, a professional journalist and an adult. These questions are given to eleven-year-old students in the English school system at the moment. This doesn't directly affect the students' future. It is used to evaluate the schools and how successful they are. And, and you think that this is something of a screwy metric? There is absolutely no evidence that proves that this kind of Education and this kind of testing actually helps kids write. Children start using relative clauses when they're two or three, even if they never hear the words relative clause. A relative clause is things like my uncle who lives in Australia. So there's no evidence that this dry, what used to be called the naming of the parts, is actually useful. It's the way that grammar was taught for many, many years. There's no good evidence that this works. Um, So if it all seems and the data seem to suggest that it is all pointless, why don't we just scrap this mode of teaching altogether? Because there are a couple of things to be said in favor of grammar. One is that it's interesting in its own right. I wouldn't be a language columnist if I thought grammar was super boring. I think it's fascinating. Two, it can be regarded as something like a human cultural heritage. So when we talk about grammar, we're talking about humankind and our own minds. 
three is practical in helping to learn a foreign language. For example, if you know what the present progressive is in English, then it can help you learn that kind of thing in Spanish. And there are reasons like that. But I think that the fact that it just is part of the human toolkit, it goes alongside art and history as, as important things that we, we care about simply because it is part of who we are. So how, how do we make the act of learning grammar better, uh, more exciting, more fun, more functional, more related to how people actually use it, need it? Rather than being given the concept of a transitive verb, a verb that requires a direct object, and being told to memorize what a transitive verb is, you can say something like, why does a sentence like, she destroyed, feel incomplete? And kids will naturally come up with something like, well, you have to destroy something. You can't just destroy. And then you can introduce the concept of a verb that needs an object. And then having led them to that, they've discovered themselves that some verbs need an extra thing. And then you can say, we call those transitive. But they've made the discovery. They haven't had it just handed to them. But they, they unravel the mysteries of language. And those mysteries are really fun. Make it a kind of discovery or a puzzle, a kind of a, a game where kids can be made to find the solutions for themselves. So what can we do about this? What we absolutely need to do to make this happen is to train teachers in this stuff. So most teachers only get a very little bit of grammar if they get any at all. In, in uh, England, school teachers have about a year of teacher training before they can teach in state schools, and they can get as little as one day of grammar instruction. So you reckon we need to train teachers more, but you're not arguing for changing the kinds of things that are taught, but how the teachers present them. Primarily the kind of teaching. And so it's not just a matter of underlining X, Y, or Z, but about the process of discovery in the classroom, which I think would be more fun for students. And then linking those discoveries more to function. Why does the passive voice sound sort of deadening? And why is repetition of it so ineffective? Or why are too many adverbs? Why does that make your prose look a little overwritten and overwrought? Things like that. Instead of saying don't use adverbs, that advice is too strict and doesn't help kids write. But if you talk about what adverbs can do, then kids will discover what they can do for them. And when you make something relevant to them, then it gives it a whole different cast to the lesson. Lane, thanks for joining us. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. You can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for £12 or $12. See you back here tomorrow. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com.